All right. Well, today we are continuing our series uh, in the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. And as we have become fond of doing, or at least I've become fond of doing, I don't know if, if you have or not, uh, but we are going to read uh, these verses together. And so let's turn our attention directly to the text. I believe it will be behind me. And I'll lead and you read along with me. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, and son of man that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I think a few places in there I might have read a little fast for you, so I apologize for that. And this is a really weighty section of Scripture. So uh, it's easy to kind of get, get lost in that, but we did pretty well again. I'm impressed by our congregation's ability to read Scripture together. I never knew it would be possible, but Andrew showed the way, and it is. So it's a good thing. So the author of Hebrews is continuing with his argument that we've seen in past weeks that Jesus is greater than the law, greater than the angels that Jewish tradition said brought the law. And he presses his point, beginning in verse 5, by looking forward to the world to come when this present age gives way to the next age of the full expression of the kingdom of God. It's helpful to understand as we embark on today's passage that ancient Judaism held to the belief that angels had been placed by God over the nation's of the world. And so the author of Hebrews writes in verse 5, let me just make things clear for you. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come 
about which we are speaking. And the author supports this statement with the Old Testament by quoting from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, which is verses 6 through 8 of our text in Hebrews 2. And in these verses, we find something very interesting about ourselves. We find something that the Bible makes very clear from the beginning, but that we often forget. Verses 6 through 8 again, which are actually Psalm 8, 4 through 6. What is man or mankind or humanity that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him or them a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And of course, as we saw in uh, the translation that we read on the screen today, uh, some translations in verse 7 read, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. The author of Hebrews explains in verse 8, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him or to them, mankind. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to mankind. Remember also what Genesis 1, 27 and 28 tell us at the very beginning of the Holy Scriptures. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. This is told to man. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2 all confirm the same thing. That God's intention from the beginning was that we, mankind, would rule his creation under his authority. Again, in Genesis 1, God tells mankind to subdue the earth and to rule over it. In Psalm 8, the psalmist declares God's original intention for man, that God put everything under mankind's feet. The term man and the phrase son of man in Psalm 8 both refer to mankind in general. We know that Genesis 1 refers to mankind in general. And so the author of Hebrews is making the point uh, while he's making the point that Christ is superior to the angels, he lets us know that mankind in general has been given a privileged position by God, the position of ruling over God's creation. God's intention from the beginning was that we would rule creation under his authority. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point in verse 5 that it is not angels who will rule the world in the age to come. It is mankind that the world will be ruled by in the age to come. Now, I'm going to be repetitive a lot today because this is some heavy lifting, and I think it warrants repetition. So I want to make sure we get this. God, from the very beginning intended for mankind 
to rule his creation under his authority. And what Hebrews 2 has now told us is that still God's plan for the future age when the earth experiences the full expression, the full realization of the kingdom of God. I want to highlight from this a couple of simple yet powerful truths. Note that Psalm 8, which is Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, lets us know that God is mindful of us. God is mindful of us. I don't know if you deal with this or not, but it's pretty easy for me to begin to feel really small and insignificant in a world that's inhabited by nearly 8 billion people. Michelle doesn't really love that I do this, but whenever we're driving somewhere that we're not familiar with, and I I see neighborhoods I've not seen before, or I see cities I've not seen before, or, you know, we're, we're driving in some remote part of the country and suddenly there's a housing development with hundreds of houses. I'm fond of saying, there's a lot of people in the world. Yes, there are, Brian. There are a lot of people in the world. But when I see these things, I am just amazed. Every street. Hundreds of stories that we know nothing about. And then that plays itself out in every city and every town and every little hamlet all over the world. And it highlights to me how big the world is and how small I am. And I can be tempted to feel really insignificant. Those of you who fly probably know this better than me since I try to avoid it. How high do you have to be in an airplane before you can't even make out human beings on the ground? Not very high. I'd say a few thousand feet will accomplish it, maybe less. And yet, in spite of the vastness of the earth, in spite of the vastness of the earth's population, in spite of the vastness of the universe, we are reminded here that God is mindful of us. The immensity of the earth and the universe, those things do not cause us to get lost in the shuffle with God. He picks us out from among the mass of humanity on the earth. He sees us. He keeps his eye on us. He is mindful of us. God's mindful of mankind. He is mindful of you. And here's what this means. It means that you are somebody valuable. It means that you are somebody important. I think that as good evangelical Christians, we are really in tune with the fact that we are not what we are supposed to be. But let's remember that even in the condition that we presently find ourselves, we are still created in God's image. The image has been marred, but we're still created in God's image. He's mindful of us. We matter to God.
And here's the second thing I want to highlight from what we've seen so far. Genesis, Psalm, and Hebrews all let us know that God created us for a good and glorious purpose. In Genesis, he put everything under the oversight of man. We were placed in the garden. We were placed in creation to care for it, subdue it, rule over it under his authority. In Psalm 8, this role of mankind is affirmed. And here in Hebrews 2, the author lets us know that God intends for mankind to exercise that authority over the world when his kingdom is fully realized. So we are known by God. We are loved by God. We are on God's mind God created us for a good and glorious purpose to have authority. Some translations of the Bible say to have dominion over the earth and to exercise dominion over God's creation under God's authority. Now look at the second part of verse 8 and verse 9 and we're wading into some, some uh, weighty waters again. In putting everything under him, mankind, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So God created us to rule over the earth. He intends for us to rule over the earth under his authority in the age to come. But at present, we do not see everything under the authority of mankind. Now, unless you're in the woods by yourself and you encounter a grizzly, we are still at the top of the food chain. We, we are uh, still uniquely created in the image of God. And we do exercise a lot of influence on the earth. I mean, mankind has done some incredible things. We build cities out of swamps. I saw a documentary on the building of Cape Coral, Florida. That place should not exist, but somehow it does. We can engineer water into a desert so that cities that really should not exist do, like Phoenix. We can hold back lakes and oceans so that we can build cities in places that they really should not be. So we exert a lot of influence. We can convince ourselves we exert a lot of control over the earth. But our control is very limited and it's quite illusory. All it takes is nature sending a hurricane and we're reminded that our flood walls only work if the storm is small enough. Our greatest achievements can be wiped out in seconds by a tornado or an earthquake. The reality is we have very little control over anything. And to the extent that we do exercise authority over the earth, very often we do it in ways that are displeasing to God. And of course, the great reminder that we're not in control, that everyone has hanging over their heads all of their lives, is death. That wasn't a part of the original deal. That wasn't what God intended for us. Death is, is so unnatural. So unnatural. It's not what God intended. We're not presently exercising the authority God intended for us. And here's why. 
We lost our authority because of sin. We lost it. We had it. God gave it to us. It was ours. And we lost it because of sin. We gave up our authority because we were intended to exercise that authority under the authority of God. But we wanted more than that. And so we stepped out from under God's authority. And in doing so, we lost it all. So instead of authority, what we received instead is the penalty, the just penalty of our rebellion. The natural consequence that comes from rejecting God's authority and removing ourselves from his care. We received the penalty of death. God crowned us with glory and honor. But we didn't live up to it. We fell short of it. More than that, we rejected it. We, we spit on the glory and honor that God bestowed upon us as people created in his image. And so we lost what God intended for us. And we became subject to death, which is the great reminder that we are not in control. We have lost authority over the thing that we most wish we could have control over but we don't. More repetition. God's plan from the beginning was for mankind to rule the earth under his authority. He still intends for mankind to rule the earth under his authority in the world to come. But at present, we do not see mankind exercising the authority God gave us because we lost it. And so how will God's original plan be fulfilled? Verse 9. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that, by the, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews writes that at present we, we don't see everything subjected to mankind, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 1, he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Here's what this means in a nutshell. Mankind abdicated the authority that God intended for us. But Jesus, yes, truly and fully God, but also truly and fully man, Jesus has and he is, right now, fulfilling God's intention, God's original intention for mankind. He is crowned with glory and honor. He rules at the right hand of God. Now. Presently. So let's consider this. And let's consider what 
this means for us. If you look throughout the Gospels, you discover that Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. That was his favorite, favorite thing to refer to himself as. He became one of us, and throughout his earthly life and ministry, he consistently highlighted that he was one of us. Every time he referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was highlighting that he is truly one of us. And it's an amazing thing. God the Son took on flesh, became one of us, and we see this highlighted throughout the verses of Hebrews 2. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, since mankind has flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Note, note what it says. Jesus shares in our humanity. Verse 11. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is our family. He is our brother. He is one of us. Verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. He had to be human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus became like his brothers, like us in every way, fully human. He had to be like us to be our high priest, to be able to represent us to God. And he had to be one of us to stand in our place and make atonement for our sins. All of these verses make the point that Jesus really is one of us. He really is truly and fully human. He is our brother. He is our representative. He is our high priest. He is the one who stands in the place of all mankind before God. And this is so important. And here's one of the reasons this is so important. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Realize something. God doesn't get tempted by anything. God is not tempted. God has never been tempted to sin. God is incapable of sin. There's no such thing as tempting God to sin. Noting that Jesus was tempted is another way of highlighting that Jesus is not, and I know this starts to, like we start to get a little uncomfortable sometimes with where I'm about to go, but Jesus is not a fake human. He's not a pretend human. He's not God claiming that he became human even though he's not really a human. No. Jesus is fully God. But he is truly and fully human. A man. And so he was tempted. Like every one of us are tempted. He was tempted to sin. He was tempted to quit. 
He was tempted to reject God's plan for his life. He was tempted to follow the path of his human ancestors and prefer his will to God's will. And here's what all of this means. It means he fully understands everything we face in life, not just in a God-knows-everything sort of way, but in the fact that he actually lived it. He actually experienced it. And so he can help us because he experienced everything that we experience. Are you here today tempted to quit? Jesus can help you because he faced that temptation. Are you here today tempted to despair? Jesus can help you because he faced that temptation. Tempted to tell God his plan for you is too hard and you're not going to do it? Jesus can help you because he faced that temptation. Tempted to punch somebody in the face? Jesus can help you because he faced that temptation. Tempted to karate chop and throat punch a bunch of people? Jesus can help you because he faced that temptation. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And so we're reminded of wonderful things in this chapter. God is mindful of us. He created us for a good and glorious purpose, and he can help us when we face every kind of temptation life brings because Jesus faced those same temptations. And he understands them from our point of view because he's one of us. He's one of us. More review. More repetition. God intended from the beginning for mankind to rule his creation under his authority. We rebelled against that plan so that at present everything is not under the authority of mankind as God intended it. But God still intends in the world to come that the earth will be under the authority of mankind as mankind is under his authority. We messed up the plan, but God's objective remains the same. And so how does God's plan get fulfilled? You know the answer. If you've, if you've been around very long at all, you know the answer. The answer is Jesus. The Son takes on human flesh, becomes a real man, so that he can reclaim and restore mankind to the destiny that God intended for us from the beginning. And the way that Jesus accomplished this is by doing what our original ancestors could not do and what no human being other than him has ever done. He did it by living in perfect obedience to God, never stepping out from under the authority of God, perfectly honoring God's authority and rightful rule of his life throughout his entire life. Being fully human and having lived in perfect obedience to God, Jesus could stand in our place, stand on our behalf, and reclaim and restore man's God-given destiny by paying for our sins and redeeming us from the penalty that our rebellion had earned us. And that's what we see throughout chapter 2. 
Verse 9 tells us that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Verse 17 lets us know that Jesus made atonement for the sins of the people. He reconciled us to God and restored us to God's original plan. Verses 10 and 11 let us know that Jesus is the author of salvation who makes men, makes us, holy. He makes us that way. We're not that way. He makes us that way. He reclaims what we lost. And then verses 14 and 15 share this glorious news. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We had eternal life and we lost it through our rebellion against God. In place of eternal life, death, which was never supposed to be a part of the human experience, became our inescapable and unbeatable foe. It became so much a part of life that we now say, Two things you can count on in life, death and taxes. Wouldn't have had either of those things if we hadn't messed up in the beginning. I don't think there were going to be taxes in an unfallen world. I'm pretty sure taxes are a result of the fall. Can I get an amen? All right. So we had eternal life but we lost it through our rebellion against God. We got death instead. It's the enemy that we fear our entire lives. Death might be coming down that aisle, so I'm going to go down this aisle. I'd like to bungee jump, but that might bring death sooner, so I don't think I'll bungee jump. Jesus... Our brother, our representative, one of us, has defeated the devil who held the power of death. And by doing so, he has freed us from having to live in fear of death anymore because he has reclaimed eternal life for us and he has reclaimed God's original purpose. For us. So, at the risk of exhausting you, let's review again because, again, this is heavy lifting today. Jesus became one of us because he had to be one of us to be our representative. As our brother, fully human, as our representative, he paid the penalty for our sin. He tasted death on our behalf. He made atonement for our sin. He became the author of our salvation, which makes us holy, sets us apart for God, which is what we abdicated through sin. And he defeats the devil in death and sets us free from the tyranny that the fear of death exercises over us for all of our lives. He reclaims for us eternal life and he reclaims for us God's original purpose for us. And after doing all of that, we go back to chapter 1. 
and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, sustaining all things by his powerful word, everything in heaven and earth subject to Jesus, the perfect man's righteous rule and reign. Jesus, our older brother and representative, is now crowned with glory and honor and has fulfilled and is fulfilling God's destiny, God's original intention for mankind. Now, in case I've bungled this and haven't said this clearly enough, let me quote from theologian N.T. Wright, who summarizes a lot of this in a really helpful way. He writes, Jesus has already attained the status which God marked out for humanity in general. Humans are not yet ruling the world, bringing God's order and justice to bear on the whole creation. And because they aren't, how then can Psalm 8 be taken seriously? The answer is that it has happened in the case of Jesus. His exaltation as Lord after his earthly ministry, suffering and death, in which he was indeed lower than the angels, has placed him in the role marked out from the beginning for the human race. He has gone ahead of us, he has gone ahead of the rest of us into God's future. The future in which order and justice, saving order and healing justice will come to the world. Jesus is the pioneer. He blazed the trail. He reclaimed and restored God's destiny for man, the, the destiny that Satan's treachery and our rebellion had lost. He's gone the way that we will follow so that in the world to come, we will fulfill our destiny and we will rule and reign over the earth and we will do it under Christ's authority. You say, Brian, you titled this series, It's All About Jesus. But today sounds like it's a lot about us. Well, it is a lot about us. Because God created us in his image. And God gave us dominion over the earth. Dominion we abdicated. And it is about us. Because in his humanity, Jesus is one of us. And he did that so that he could represent us and that he could restore us to God's original intention for us. But we lost. He's regained. And even though right now he is the only man who is fulfilling God's original intention for mankind, he has ensured that we will follow his lead and we will be fully restored to our original purpose in the world to come. And so it is a lot about us. By God's doing. By God's choice. By God's original intention. But it is absolutely all about Jesus. Because the point that the author is still making from chapter 1 is that the law, the angels, could not accomplish any of this. The law couldn't get us back to God's original intention for us. The law was power, powerless to accomplish any of this. Only Jesus 
could accomplish it. And he did accomplish it. And because he did, he has been given the name that is above every name. He has been given the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Going back to the author's original point of the whole book of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the angels that the Jews taught brought the law. Jesus, our Savior King, has reclaimed everything that we lost and we will worship him forever because he has all praise. Goes to Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Lord. And so today I appeal to you to ask God to get the truths that we've seen in his word deep down into your spirit. It is my prayer that God would drive deep into your spirit and he would fully persuade you that God is mindful of you. He sees you. He loves you. You are on his mind. There's this song. I, I don't know where it came from. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know anything about it. But one of the lines of the song is, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And I believe that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. I pray that you would be persuaded of this. I pray that each of us would be fully persuaded that God created us for a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. And he has a great and ultimate purpose for which he created us. You will eventually, if, if you know him and you remain faithful to the end, you will rule and reign with him. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know all that that means. But I know that we will rule and reign with him. And these two truths, these two truths mean that you are somebody. You matter. You're created in God's image. You're known and loved by God. You have a grand and glorious purpose that God is going to fulfill in you. And beyond these things, I pray that each of us would see Jesus as he truly is. He is truly and fully God, but he's also truly man. He really is one of us, and so he understands us. And because he does understand everything that we experience, he can help us when we are tempted. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to disobey God, when you're tempted to return evil for evil, he really can help you if you'll turn to him. And I pray that each of us would live in appreciation for all Christ has done for us, that we would give our lives fully to him, worshiping him, serving him, giving him our whole lives. And I pray that every person here today would come to see Jesus as better than everything. Better than everything. Better than the law. Better than old religious beliefs that we shouldn't hang on to anymore. Better than anything the world has to offer us. Jesus is better than everything.
is greater than everything that tries to divert our attention and our love away from him. It is all about Jesus. He's greater than everything. And may we all worship him like that's really true. Because it is really true. Why don't you stand? 